you don't want to read the nursing notes in the department, just be prepared to read them from the stand in court. What they have to realize is that that kind of behavior went out with red meat. Being found dead is never a good prognostic sign. Hey, Rick Picotta, Greg Henry, coming to you for Risk Management Monthly. We're broadcasting from the 2015 ASEP course, and uh, we have a guest. Our guest is uh, Terry Borchers. Terry, uh, welcome aboard. Thank you, Rick. Yeah, Terry. Terry is uh, Terry is big. He's got a booth here at the ASEP 2015. So tell us, how is the traffic through the booth? You doing well over there, guy? Well, the traffic's great. The show's great. I don't think we'd ever miss it again. Um, and but I, I tend to circulate and get around, see all the people. Good. Uh, that I already know and make some new acquaintances. Yeah. It's been great. Just in case there's anybody on this uh, listenership who doesn't realize that this is a ultimate good old boys club where people know everybody. It, it really is that way in the risk management medical legal business. Terry and I were just going through a few blasts from the past names and <laughs> everybody knows the same scoundrels. I promise you that. <laughs> That's true. Uh, Terry, you're with and insurance services. I get yes, that. that's, I kind of stumbled a, through that a little bit. It's a bit company there. I founded and I'm president of, yes. Uh, you know, we've never had an insurance broker uh-huh. ever on this. And you want to tell us a little bit about the brokerage business there? Well, we're a little bit different from the typical insurance broker where we call ourselves an insurance portfolio management company with a insurance brokerage core. And we specialize 100% in the healthcare industry. And particularly medical groups of three to hundred, three to three hundred physicians, and uh, we built quite fo- quite an extensive following of emergency groups and radiology groups and anesthesiology and so on. So uh, we manage the whole portfolio A to Z from all the property casualty coverages, from just basic business liability and property to directors and officers liability to medical malpractice, which is the big ticket item, and workers comp, all the way through the employee benefits. So that's uh, the, that's a typical portfolio. Now, Terry, you write- want they can they can get from you if they want something insurance from you they can get it in all 50 states now uh you were originally uh, pretty much exclusively uh, california yes up until last fall we got licensed in all 50 states and we're doing business in long island and hawaii and florida and yeah in between now that means you deliver a product mm-hmm. which is in some other way uh, certified by the state. You don't actually own the insurance company. We could if we wanted to, but, uh, but there's uh, it's a very soft market today. There's right. a lot of carriers that will write medical professional liability for doctors. And it's a matter of picking and choosing the best of the best for the particular type of specialty that's in, in uh, the, that we're working on and what their particular pluses and minuses are from a law standpoint and an underwriting standpoint. Can you bring uh, customers to pretty much most companies or most that make sense? We have a, we have 10 criteria and at any point in time there's probably 50 to 60 companies that will write medical professional and we tier them. The tier A, tier 1 are ones that are long-term partners that will stick with you through thick and thin and uh, but, but deliver a great product, the best product in the market for the specialty, great pricing, great services. And then there's a tier two, which are opportunists, bottom fishers that uh, like to make a, see that they can make a profit quickly. And if, if things turn, if the loss runs, uh, loss experience turns south, they're gone. And then there's t- tier three, which we stay away from. 
companies there, we stay away from. There's been a uh, substantial change in the uh, incidence of malpractice. Mm-hmm. Um, it, it's, it's apparently going down substantially, mm-hmm. and a number of states have sub- significantly changed the rules for suing doctors and made it much harder to sue doctors. That would seem that the, it would drive the price of insurance down. Mm-hmm. Is there a substantial gap, however, between the what is being charged for insurance versus the decrease in these premiums, which would allow the insurance companies to kind of edge up their profits, or is it still kind of lean and mean in terms of how people sell their insurance, price their insurance? Well, I, I, I think frequency has gone down. Uh, but severity, we're starting to see substantially increased severity. And that's not in all states. I'm talking about primarily California. I had heard similarly. Anything about PAs and NPs? Yes. I think the, the perception amongst most doctors is that the PAs coming in and the nurse practitioners are coming in either fresh out of school or from primary care or some other specialty. And they, they don't have the skill set. They don't have the um, knowledge and um High, high risk in a lot of cases. High, high, high risk. I gave a talk today on exactly that question, and I mm-hmm. said, here are the 10 questions you better be able to answer within your group mm-hmm. before the lawyer from the other side sits down with you. Mm-hmm. And then I asked around the room, who here has a program to advance these people to make sure it's recorded somewhere that they've been to the credentials committee and been approved for all, if they're going to be a clinician, they should be approved like all the other clinicians. They're not nurses. They're not techs. These are people who are clinical people, and the hospital has a responsibility as well to make sure that these people have been brought along and have, have been properly approved for what's happening. And uh, I'll, I'll tell you, this is a new world for a lot of people. Ten years ago, 15 years ago, we had very few PAs and NPs in emergency medicine. Now, that number has skyrocketed. And and I don't see that trend slowing down anywhere in the near future. Do you? No, I don't. No. You know, you hear repetitively that about 30% of the patients seen in big groups are seen by PAs and NPs, which is a huge percentage. And I guess one of the issues has been um, 30 years ago, we said you can't work in an emergency department unless you become board certified. Mm-hmm. Now you're allowed to work in an emergency department and see patients, quote, under supervision of varying degrees. With the primary care training of a NP or a PA, there's no kind of additional training, specialty work, etc. And so there's a, all of the groups are going to say that they provide some training for their folks, but it's really difficult because it can't be done very quickly. There's a lot to learn. So we started some courses for uh, PAs and NPs, and they've been highly solicited because these folks are just looking and craving training in emergency medicine. Yeah, Rick, don't be shy. Go ahead. Shamelessly promote the boot camp series. There's one. What series? And there's, oh, yeah, and there's advanced boot camp. I have no idea who's teaching this thing, but let me tell you, yeah. I hear there are dynamite. So what can I say? Yeah. All right. We got it. We got it. We, the, uh, got the thing it. I could add, add to that is we're probably pretty rare from a standpoint of, of our type of business in that we've got an executive vice president and chief medical officer. And Ricky and 
know, I'm a Greg, you know, I'm as Paul Kivala. Right. And uh, for, we were fortunate to have some really smart doctors and NPs and PAs in our customer client base. And Paul feels uh, the challenge with the, the APPs is, is, is as much the doctors knowing how to manage them mm-hmm. and set a boundary around each one as to terms of what they're competent to do and not get into trouble. And each NP and EP, each, each APP has a different skill level and a different knowledge level. And I don't think the insurance companies don't, aren't aware of it. Um, well, I'll tell you who is risk. becoming aware of it, though, is the plaintiff's bar. Mm-hmm. <clears throat> They'll ask questions like, so you supervise their first hundred chest pain cases uh, you supervise their febrile child cases at least till you felt comfortable and you signed off on their performance. And the number of groups around the country that's doing that is incredibly small. And as you pointed out, somebody may come from a five-year background of doing urgent care and emergency medicine. That's fine. Maybe they just got out of PA school last week. What kind of leeway do you give them? I think, I think we're looking for some rational criteria that says this is how we advance people just for the, just for the protection of the public. Absolutely. We ought to be doing something reasonable. Although I don't think something that formal is very, very, very common at all where you say, okay, I've checked them out on... X many of these and those kinds of things. I think per, people prefer to leave it loosey goosey. And in the pr- province of leaving it loosey goosey, there's the opportunity to say, "Well, actually, I only did two of these things." So um, we're we're kind of sensitive to this. The um, only people who benefit from leaving it loosey goosey are plaintiffs' counsels and those people who are running businesses which are not ethically run. If somebody hasn't done a central line or hasn't done 10 of them that have been supervised, you know, when the residents come on board to start being attendings, we get a printout of what they did in the residency. We, we, We at least have something we can show in their credentialing folder. Right. They have to track every one of these procedures so that they know how many they have done. And there's probably some minimum number and uh, the like. Terry, do you get involved in the nature of the the uh, lawsuits that are being filed? Because I remember when your company insured me and we got into trouble, you acted as an intermediary for sure in those cases. So you must have some familiarity with what your clients are being sued for, I would think. Yes. What we're seeing is we're seeing a a significant increase in what we call monster claims. That's the label that Paul Kevala and I put on it. It's the million dollar or more settlement or judgment, not including legal. So we're seeing in California, even though we have Micra, which is a $250,000 pain and suffering cap, we're seeing multi-million dollar settlements and judgments. Okay, And they're typically multi-defendant cases. Uh, the entity, the, a doctor or two, a doctor or two, or an NP or PA, if, if they've touched the patient, they'll get named in the suit. And I can cite, we've just done a poll of our big claims over the last 15 years that have been $20 million claims or more in the last, uh, last 15 years on about 20 million visits. So that's one big claim for every million visits, one one million dollar or more claim for every. That's it used to be about a million and a half claims of visits per million dollar claim, but now it's down to about a million. 
Well, you know, uh, I, I caught Paul in the hallway, and he had mentioned that multiple people could be named in these. Mm -hmm. But it would seem that the PA and the doctor and the group are all going to be insured by the same entity. It's not, is it really the same as three claims or is it just one? Well, I think what Rick's asking is how many sets of limits yeah, what am I are asking? up, how many sets of limits appear on the claim? Because the way, when I was doing it, mm -hmm. if there were two docs involved, there were two sets of limits. Mm -hmm. The group would often have a set of limits. Mm -hmm. Now, if there's a PA who is theoretically being supervised because they used a doctor's name and provider number to bill on that case, mm -hmm. do you require that there be two sets of limits if two providers are involved? Well, the, the companies we use provide <coughs> individual limits. So if the limits are one, three, one million, three million, one million per claim, three million annual aggregate, uh, there's a, a, a separate limit for the entity, for each doctor, for each NP, and each PA. That's very unique in the market. So if, you, if you've got a doctor, the entity, and a PA, that's $3 million of limits that are available. Yeah. That's before we get into the hospitals. So there's money. The, the, the groups have to be careful that they're not buying uh, coverage with a single medical event limit. That means if you have a, the one patient and multiple defendants, uh, they cap it at a million dollars, yeah. uh, some of these companies I, I want to stop for just a second. Our listeners should hear that again, mm -hmm. that you don't understand what you're buying till you've read the declaration page mm -hmm. of the policy. Right. Did you buy one million bucks of coverage? Did you buy three million? Because when you have to go in there to negotiate, first of all, plaintiff is going to find out how many sets of limits you've got as soon as he, he asks for a set of interrogatories that'll come mm -hmm. up. But you at least ought to know what you're playing with mm -hmm. and your chances of going excess verdicts mm -hmm. of the insurance claim. Mm -hmm. I certainly had several people I dealt with that were driven into bankruptcy mm -hmm. by going in excess of the insurance claim. Mm -hmm. And I, I think that this is a point that we're really making to the listeners here. Mm -hmm. Look and see what it says. And it, 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 we find mm -hmm. it's easiest to explain if you if you come up with a half a dozen actual claim scenarios. Mm -hmm. you know, how much? How much? How many? Uh, what dollars or limits are available? Right. And but we found that the, the hospitals are starting to refuse to be the deep pocket anymore. I think Dignity Health was the first one in California, out of Methodist Hospital in Sacramento. There was a large claim. A little infant sat in the waiting room for five hours. Ended up being transferred to Stanford. And ended up having her both hands and both feet amputated. Now, the emergency group got hit with a million, but uh, Dignity got hit with ten million. Wow! And they they said we're done being the deep pocket, and so they mandated two million, six million limits on all their contractor providers, whether they're emergency, anesthesiology, radiology, hospitals, whatever. We worked with them and, and got them down to two million, four million, and uh, so. But that's the standard in, in, within the dignity system. Not other systems. Uh, other systems aren't quite so picky. Next uh, point for the listeners: what he's talking about, ladies and gentlemen out there, is uh, the the cross claim question, and can they go back after you, the hospital? for its losses if someone finds that the um, that the individual physician was liable and the PA was liable, but no hospital personnel were liable, now they want to cross indemnity. 
they want to make sure that they can go back after you for their cost. And sometimes it's not just the individual cost of what they give to the patient, the indemnity claim. It's in the defense claims as well. See, the hospitals want to get out of the business of taking care of our losses. Mm-hmm. In fact, one of my jobs was to make sure that we found something wrong with their care too <laughs> so that they didn't have a basis for a, a cross-indemnity claim. I caught Paul in the hallway yesterday afternoon and I kind of, he was just coming into the elevator and I just kind of inappropriately started asking him all these questions. But he did mention the same thing about monster claims. And you have a a handout here that talks about 5.2 million verdict against a PA, an emergency physician. And Paul was talking about something what appeared to be relatively simple, like a knee injury which turned out to be this $5.2 million claim. Well, the PA thought it was a a sprained knee, and it was actually a dislocated knee. Details, details. Details. Details, details. And advised, kind of in passing, that that's what she thought it was to emergency doc, and he was that the the patient was discharged, came back in a day or two later, and had to have his leg amputated above the knee. Mm. So, yeah, Mm. that was was a Maryland case. Can't say who it was against, but... Well, you know um, what? Is, you it was a PA case. Whether mm. it was appealed or not, and uh, good question. I, I don't know. Paul did the Paul did the work up on it. Now, because the emergency physician signed the chart, well, maybe they, they well. That that's a new trend, and we should talk about this because if you're going to be taking some of the money which is the only reason emergency physicians have PAs and NPs, it is a good financial model, was the emergency physician reported to the data bank along with the PA. Do you know? I do not, but Paul, Paul probably does. Yeah. See, the, the, I think our doctors have lots of questions, and I can't tell you how much anger there is out there as I sit and read the depths mm-hmm. and advise. I, I prep a lot of people before they go to deposition, mm-hmm. and we try to, to keep them from going at each other because you never saw a case turn to crap. Like when a PA says, well, that doctor never comes in and sees my cases. I've had them say that. I've had them say, this doctor, well, he never takes the time. Yeah, he may say he's seen the case, but he's never touched them. Ooh, devastating. Devastating. <laughs> and, I, and I think that, I shouldn't laugh. and I've seen doctors turn right around and say, they never brought that low back pain in for me to see or alerted me as to what was in the department, and now I'm being sued because of a uh, uh, perilumbrical uh, abscess. I mean, and they get very indignant in deposition. You know, doctors don't take criticism well, and if they can dump it on somebody else, that's why all these questions about the scenarios, who gets sued, who gets reported to the data bank, how much money is there up on the case, I think we've got a new level of complexity here, particularly when a physician's federal provider number is used to bill. Well, you know, I agree. It's kind of interesting that uh, we have reviewed some cases where the PA says one thing, the doctor says the other. And so now you have two of the defendants are uh, pointing the finger at each other kind of thing. And I think you probably want nothing 
This is called a cha-ching case because <laughs> all the plaintiff's counsel has to do is sit back, cha-ching, and add a zero and threaten to play both those tapes at, uh, at trial. It, it is, I've never seen anything pushed towards settlement faster than two health professionals going after each other. And uh, a lot of these docs, I'll tell you, the biggest problem I'm seeing right now is they say they were a part because they signed their name and then in deposition say, well, I really had nothing to do with that case. Well, there's something fundamentally wrong here. You either did or you didn't. I don't have any cases where if the doc goes into the room, we can tell and, and the PA dictates the note, doctor so-and-so in to see the patient. Real simple. Not a problem. Also, there's a problem with settlement of dispute. If, if, if the doc says it's this and the PA says it's that, there's two clinicians. How do they decide who settles that case? Who gets the top billing and is the top dog? Do you find that uh, PAs or NPs uh, ever seek out their own individual insurance? Because nurses have done that. They would get their own policy uh, independent of the hospital because they had, you know, I don't know whether it was inordinate fear or not, but they wanted to make sure that they were going to be covered. They wanted to protect their license and their insurance costs were, were very low. Would the same thing apply? Have you ever seen a PA or NP independently in the emergency department setting? A few here or there. Really? A few, yeah. They would be considered to be hyper-cautious. A lot of things depend on how they're retained or maintained. Mm -hmm. I've got hospitals now that have employed PAs and NPs and have a group, a private group of docs in the overseeing position. I've, I've seen so many new mixed models here. I, I think before you could ever give advice to someone, you'd have to see how it's set up, how it's structured, the cross-indemnifications with the hospital, all those other things I would think would, would decide what kind of rate structure we're going to use. You know, it did make the news when Dignity, formerly called Catholic Healthcare West, upped the minimum insurance requirements for its contracting groups. And uh, I know that the ER docs were going nuts over this. And there was some data to suggest that if you raised your limits, that you were just giving the plaintiff uh, just a bigger target. They were going to go max limits no matter what. So if max limits were on 1 million, they would go for 1 million. If max limits are 2 million, they're going to go for uh, for 2 million. And Michael Frank, you know, who we've talked to a number of times, takes the position, I don't know whether, you know, how many people would agree with that, that most of the insurance companies are not going to go after your house and your and your personal assets. They're going to stop at the upper limits. I think that it's with, very with individual. one exception I'm aware of. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. There's been some exceptions. So Mike is usually right guy, and I think it is more work for a plaintiff to go after your private asset. It, it's work. But you know what? If they haven't got much else to do that day, <laughs> why not do it? Are you referring to Orange County, California? Yes. Yeah. <laughs> they became a client after that $11.6 million jury verdict. Yeah. And we helped them through that. But it, they went through HALL and uh, very difficult. But they ended up in, on, uh, you probably know the whole backstory. But 
Yeah, we, yeah, we, we do. It's, well, you know, uh, some of it, they, the they're, they're not allowed to disclose, but it was generically a case that uh, went bad, and they, um, the uh, lawyer went after them all personally because of the, uh, there was an allegation that they uh, did not keep their corporate documents in order, and they had their annual minutes. And That's true. They That's pr- true. They it was pierced a the corporate veil. P- partnership of professional corporations, and uh, they didn't dot the I's and cross the T's and, and in terms of their annual meeting uh, and minutes. I think and the, 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 the lesson to be learned in this meetings. one is, is so straightforward that you've got to pay that $1,000 a year for that for those guys to come up with these minutes of the meeting that you never had and all of those kinds of things so that your the paperwork is in order. Paperwork needs to be good. Case where the partners had to pull $3.3 million out of their personal Oh, pockets. yes. We understand that. And it was right. They didn't dot the I's and cross the T's on, you know, they signed contracts in the wrong, you know. I think they ultimately the came out of that where they sued their insurance company or their lawyers somebody got sued and these guys got money back but it's not something that any of you want to go through so make sure your paperwork is in order terry we want don't want to take up all of your time here we are going to include in our handout with this tape a way so people can get a hold of you for further questions and references to what's going on. Mm-hmm. But Rick and I would both like to thank you very much for being here today. And sure. listen, the standard commission is not required. <laughs> <laughs> I got it. No, well, thanks uh, for having me on. We really appreciate your coming on and enlightening us about the world of uh, being an insurance service provider. Mm-hmm. Not a provider. You're, you 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 did, did I get that yeah, right? Yeah, that's that's close enough. Okay, for right. providing insurances, the broad range of insurance products. <laughs> there you go. Yeah, I got it. Okay, you All need right. a job, Greg. Yeah, <laughs> translating for me. Terry, what else are you seeing out there? Well, I we're seeing multi specialties named in these suits, particularly radiology. Oh, good. The big ones are involving emergency and radiology. We've we've had a spate of them. That one down in Orange County was a five point three million, well eleven point six million involved involved radiology and the emergency group. Uh, we had one out in um, in Ventura County. It was a million six against the emergency group, and another excuse me, million nine against the emergency group, another million six against the radiology. So group. how do these radiologists and emergency physicians get in this mess? That was a, a, a progressing stroke. Radiology, excuse me, the emergency physician apparently ordered the wrong test or image or whatever from the radiologist. Rob radiologist doesn't catch it, but they they should have. They got dinged because of not catching this migrating or, or mm-hmm. progressing stroke. That's a lot of money. Yeah. Then we had one down in Northridge. Uh, two of them, same group, very close together. One was three point five million settlement. There was 3.85 million wow, big settlement, numbers. not including the legal. And um, one of them involved radiology. It was a little, I think, 14-month-year-old girl. And she ingested popcorn kernel in her, into, it got lodged in her bronchus. I think, you know, I'm not a doctor, but that's what happened. And neither the, the doctor, uh, neither the emergency physician who'd been practicing 30-some years, nor the radiologist could see it. And they ended up settling it. And um, the one, well, 3.5 million, I think the radiologist was an additional 3.5 million. Ooh. 
But Paul and I uh, met with the group leader uh, on those. That was the Dignity Health. Both claims were covered by their two million, four million limits, and uh, Dignity helps uh, escape being the deep pocket. I'm glad they're. I'm sure they're glad they upped their limits. And the, <laughs> and the contracting groups, they can bitch all they want. The fact is that the hospitals have the power. If you don't want it, they'll find somebody else. There's an, there's another group right at the doorway there. Mm-hmm. Who, it, it, yes, two four. That's fine. Mm-hmm. We'll take it. Along with upping the limits, I think they're ch- they changed their name to Indignity Health. <laughs> now be careful. That's now all be right. careful. Yeah. You know. <laughs> no. I, 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 <clears throat> I kind so, of liked it when it was Catholic Healthcare West. To tell you the, truth. Yeah. the idea of you know taking that religious connotation out of the name, I guess, is kind of like uh, um, getting politically more correct. But I don't know. I worked with them for a long time, actually. Yeah, you were a. You're a I was a dignity yeah. for Catholic uh, Health West uh, yeah. site mm-hmm. when you were a client of ours. Yeah. Yes, yeah. I was. Yes, sir. And we did have a couple of times when we called you but mm-hmm. i don't think we uh, exchanged any dollar on through our relationship which was i think pretty good huh. got any other points there that we need to hit well, well i think those two cases in uh, la county uh, that i just mentioned paul and i met with the with the lead doctor of the group uh, along with eugenie shea who's our favorite company underwriter and got the medical records and looked at the medical records and uh, realized that these big claims, you got to get to them. You got to get a doctor's eyes on them at the event stage when the trail's still warm. Hmm. A strategic thinker like Paul. Paul looked at those two cases. He says, I could have defended the popcorn case. I could have impeached the expert witness. And that should have, if that went to trial, that should have been one. And the other one should have, instead of three and a half million, should have settled for no more than two million. Well, the implication there is that the experts on one side or other are not up to snuff. No, I, I just think it gets in the insurance company assembly line and moves along. And these are not doctors that are managing the claims, and they get a year or two years into it, and it's too late. It's too late. You've got to find out if there's been a medical error really early on, really early on. Well, I guess that's one of the reasons we're told all the time if you suspect something is 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 going badly that you call somebody uh, uh, this is a, a kind of like they'll connect you to an attorney it'll be attorney client privilege you can what happened uh, right away uh, rather than waiting for the summons and complaint right because the pa- patients don't have to wait they just watch daytime tv yeah. and every eight minutes there's a phone number so just an example, one of the services, we've got a whole package of risk reduction services coming out, and one of them is a early intervention or kind of an emergency intervention at the event stage um, where we get a doctor's eyes on that, on that event and to find out if the medical, you know, if we've got a medical error where they met the standard of care and it's defensible or not. Do you advise your clients that uh, you want to call from them? Whenever they're concerned about oh, a sure. potential problem, absolutely, absolutely. But we're going to formalize this into a service after the first of the year. And I would think that somehow a lawyer would have to get involved in this through the insurance company to keep this. There's a privileged privilege. relationship, but do they have a privileged relationship with you, where they're would would they tell you it cannot be uh, discovered? Or well, we have our own law firm, so uh, one way or another, the the relationship will be privileged. Okay. Yeah. So. Cool. Or kind of unusual in that regard too. Anything else on the on the yellow pad here? No, those, I think those are the major trends we're seeing. Yeah. Well, thanks very much. Thank As you. Again, our first insurance service provider.
talking to us uh, it's great. about what the business aspects are like this. Because we've all bought insurance. Yeah, we certainly have. But yeah. and, there's a and, lot more and to know about it. In honor of being our first insurance services provider, I'm checking to make sure my wallet's still here. And yes, it is. So another <laughs> that's, first that's here good, on Risk Management Monthly. Good Risk Management. Monthly. Good yes, risk exactly. management. <laughs> all right. Thank you very much. Thanks, Rick. Thanks, Greg. Rick, we're lucky again. I don't know how this can happen, but we have one of the famous MDJDs, F-A-C-E-P, B-F-D. Ninja. Uh, what? You forgot Ninja. Oh, yeah, and Ninja, uh, who's been on the show with us before. Jennifer. Now, Jennifer, if I get your hyphenated last name wrong, you will correct me. Now, is it L'Homme Dieu? Close enough? It's perfect. Oh, Rick, did you hear that? Thanks a lot. I, I, I would expect you to speak French as well, so yeah. I'm, I'm not surprised. I wanted, obviously, no parts of that introduction. So, uh, you, All right, you, I you, noticed that. You know. Anyway, Jennifer has been with us before. She's very interested in emergency medicine, medical legal. She's been on the med legal committee of ASEP and is uh, interested in all things suit prone in emergency medicine. Jennifer, thanks for coming. We appreciate you know, you, it. I have to also acknowledge that she's a lawyer. You just kind of assume that, uh, you know. I said MD, JD, FACEP, BFD. Okay, we'll edit that out. Yeah, okay. Right. okay, perfect. Hey, listen, you have a pretty interesting background about uh, what you've done in the past. I mean, you've got a litany of prior jobs that I'd like to hear about. Besides that job in Singapore. Go ahead. <laughs> no, really. Yeah. I mean... Uh, you weren't supposed to tell about oh, that. okay. That's right. how we met, actually. That's how we met. <laughs> so, you know, it goes through this litany uh, of what you started to do uh, from high school on. You know, it'll be acceptable. Oh, this is a long story. I'm not sure you want this oh, one. We don't want, too, we don't want too long. No, yeah. Oh, boy. I've been in the Naval Reserve. It's a medic. I've been an Army JAG officer. I was a medical malpractice defense attorney for a large army teaching hospital. I've been a police officer. I have been a Chinese food delivery person, ski patrol, mountain rescue. I've done a lot of things. Let's, let's just say we're not worthy and move on because we could spend the whole thing with that. All I can say is, officer, I will put up no resistance. Cl- clamp on the cuffs. Hey, listen, you uh, you, oh, you practice in uh, Seattle or thereabouts? I do, in Tacoma, actually. Oh, Tacoma, okay. And you you just mentioned that you lived in Gig Harbor, because I had known a bunch of people who had lived in Gig, Gig Harbor. It's kind of like, uh, it's the Beverly Hills of uh, Tacoma, more or less. Right, we're, we're just outside... Gig Harbor, where oh, you know, okay. a lot of the cookhouses are. Here's the here's modification. <laughs> so, the modification, right. right. Well, you know, I don't want to say, um, you know. Beverly Hills, okay. Right. okay. Well, yeah, it's you actually live in East L.A., but I can see Beverly Hills exactly. from my house. That's exactly. About right. <laughs> right. Exactly. That's right. So listen, All right. Down to business. At, down to business. You guys were at the council meeting. I was, unfortunately, but you guys were. And there were some medical legal type things that came up. Would you please... Alert us to what happened there. Well, there is a process in ASAP, and we've talked about it many times, about how you go after expert witnesses who are members of ASAP. How, if you believe they have given egregious, in the true Greek sense of that word, oh, here we go. which means apart from the herd, 
That's what egregious means in Greek. And if we feel that's the case, we have a process to investigate that testimony. The Ethics Committee can then recommend to the board various sanctions that go all the way from, don't do that again, an official letter of censure, or on one, in one case, they not only sent a letter of censure, but they kicked the physician out of ASAP. So I think that uh, that's the process that takes care of members in the college. But the resolution that's going to the board deals with people who are not in the college. What do we do to people who are practicing emergency medicine but not members of ASAP? Also, what do we do if someone is a cardiologist, a neurologist, a this or that, and they're claiming to know the standard of care for emergency physicians? What are we going to do about that? So the resolution... Jennifer, I'll let you speak to the resolution. What did we send to the board? So the resolution that we we revised and ended up sending to the board basically just says that we have decided that we would like to go after people who testify against our members, or I think really even against, I don't even think, I think it would change the rule so that we could even go to bat against someone who testifies against any emergency physician, regardless of whether or not they are an ASAP member. I think it would change it that way as well. Yes. But what it says is that we would like to be able to review these cases and review the testimony under our our ethics process and determine whether or not this rises to the level of egregious testimony. And if it does, we want some process to try to stop it. And the way we would do that is we would send a letter to that person's um, professional society or to the licensing board in their state or to the defense bar so that this could be a searchable document so that that essentially we could, we could cut the the person who is testifying egregiously off at the knees in at least future cases. I think the general counsel of the college weighed in on this issue. And she said that, and uh, several of us spoke to this issue, the the college can't send, uh, send a letter of censure to people who are not members of the college. That doesn't mean, as she pointed out, that we can't send them a letter saying, we're unhappy with your testimony and we're, we can send it to your hospital. Because when they give deposition, they usually identify their hospital, their state, where they have a license, all that sort of thing. We can send those other letters. Now, I'm sure everybody's asking, well, why? What's the problem? You need to be a little cautious. Are you participating in defamation of character which may cause a, a, a remuneration problem for the uh, for this physician. And I think one of the other elements <clears throat> of this is that what makes our process different is that we don't have two b- battling experts. One says this, one says the other. What is the standard of care? When this comes before the ethics committee, you have a group, a subset of, of leader emergency physicians who have been practicing emergency medicine for many years and they collectively are looking at this case and deciding what was the standard of care and whether or not the testimony was egregious. And so it carries much more weight, I think. And especially coming from the college, that that carries a lot of weight as well. 
Although over the years, and this process has been in place 10 years? Yeah, a little longer than that. A long time. Yes. You can count on one hand the number of people who have gotten any kind of... Two. On two hands? On two hands. All right. It's a small number. It would have to be viewed as a small number of people. (laughs) And of those, only one was asked to leave the college... Exactly. And so there were others, um, the implication was they got letters of some sort, basically expressing concern regarding their testimony. We've sent 10 letters of, nine letters of censure. We've sent a couple of other sort of, you know, we're looking at this. And then we have one where they actually kick someone out of the college. And the fact that they were kicked out of the college was published in the college's journal. Yeah, I remember reading that. Yes. And because Jennifer works at Madigan, uh, where there's a husband and wife team that have been there for a long time. The husband is also an attorney and has been concerned about egregious testimony from one physician and has made this almost his life work, at least a serious, serious hobby, to try to nail this person. You know, I, I'd just like to interject something on that. He he did. He spent many years on this one case and was ready to give it up uh, because things weren't moving forward. And what happened is he got a call from the widow of an emergency physician who had killed himself because of testimony from this person, and that 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 spawned this late this review. Wow, that's heavy. That's very heavy. It really is. If that, if that, if anything would re-energize Joe, that I think that would do it. Yes, abs- absolutely. But I think the point that was nicely made with the new resolution is we understood how you go after a member. Now that can vary. The aggressiveness can vary by who's on the ethics committee and who's on the this committee and that committee. But we've never had a process to deal with that, the rogue character. And they always say the same thing in court. No, I'm not a member of ASEP. I'm the brave physician who's willing to speak despite the hate and and fury that would come down from organized medicine. I'm the one who speaks for the patient. Well, as you know, and we've talked about this before, one of Jerry Hoffman's points of view is, has a physician ever gotten a letter who was defending an emergency physician regarding egregious testimony in the defense of a doctor? And will that ever happen in all eternity? The answer is, the answer is honestly no. So this is only about people who are going after emergency physicians. And so there's some issue here of, uh, of equity. Well, I I think that the college is, as you point out, Rick, a professional slash trade organization. And the trades take care of themselves, just as the plumbers in Chicago. I mean, our dues-paying members expect that there will be some aggressive action on the part of the organization they pay dues dollars to, to help take care of what they consider to be outrageous behavior and testimony. You're right. It's not going to be as often. But you know what? I I honestly think we need a case like that brought just to do the investigation. I haven't seen it yet. Have you seen one, Jennifer? 
Unfortunately not, but I think that it's important that we look carefully at all cases, including defense testimony, because you you want to be fair to both the physician mm-hmm. and someone who's been hurt through negligence. And the, the person who's been hurt through negligence deserves every bit of of good legal service as the defending physician. I would agree. I would agree. And so now this is going to go to the board for action. And the way it was written, it's loose enough that they can come up with their own mechanism as to what they're going to do with that information. Jennifer, anything's on the radar that we ought to be uh, alerted to in terms of what you're seeing out there? Well, one of the things that we had talked about with a former speaker on your show was that there is a trend towards, or at least appears to be a trend towards going for the high limits on policies. And that's always been true, of course, because, you know, the, the plaintiff's attorney is going for as much money as they can get. But if there is a, you know, there's a cap on, on each of those, especially when you're talking about settlement. And so what better way to go after another pocket than to bring in another physician from a different specialty. So combining the case and aggressively going after, say, a a physician who missed a PE and the radiologist who missed a PE, or the physician who ordered the wrong test and the radiologist who didn't call and say, hey, are you looking for a stroke? You You need to get an MRI also, or whatever the case may be. Yeah, you see these cases where multiple people are involved and you hear that one party settled and another party settled and you're the uh, emergency doctor has de- declined to settle so that they already got money. And I don't even know whether that it's allowed in testimony that other people have settled uh, this case and paid because I think that would obviously taint the jury. Yeah, the dangerousness of miniaturization and technology was uh, shown at the the ASEP show, where there was, and everybody's name will stay out of this, a combined ambulance company and CAT scanner. So they can do the CAT scan in the field to get TPA started sooner. And the words on the banner were, the new standard of care in emergency medicine. Boy, that's dangerous for all of us, isn't it? Oh, oh my God. I saw that and said, do you understand the legal implications of the term standard of care? And uh, I mean, I'm sure Dr. Hoffman was having a a convulsion when he saw that. But uh, But the bottom line is we are pushed in certain directions. And then you have plenty of people who are willing to pile on when there's a bad outcome. The thing that that brings to mind that case is that we have a lot of telemedicine occurring now. And we, we're starting to see some cases there, but I, I can only imagine that this is going to explode. For example, we're doing a lot of telepsych consults. Mm-hmm. And, and that person who's not in the room with the patient is making a determination whether or not they're safe to go home. And we're, we're going off of that recommendation. That, to me, is, I understand that it may be a, a practical necessity, but it's, also, it's a, also, frankly, a little bit dangerous from a liability standpoint. There are also a lot of telestroke systems now in place, whereby the TPA, for example, is given and the patient is not shipped. 
to a hospital that has neurosurgical specialists. Yeah, in all in all truth, there is no paper that says if you bleed damn near to death from TPA into the head, there's anything the neurosurgeon's going to do to make true. the outcome any different. You know, I, I remember I sat on the uh, stroke project at the NIH when this came out, and and Walker, who headed the project, was a neurosurgeon. And he said, well, we've got to have some requirements in there about this or that. And he says, well, neurosurgeon's got to do something. Well, his own specialty society said, like what? You've just given him <laughs> the exact medication. Does any neurosurgeon want to go into the head of somebody who's just been given TPA? I, I, I can't picture it. I, I, I don't know what they bring to the table. If you do bleed, pretty much you're, we're going to have to see how you how you do supportive care supportive care only and see how you come out of it now no one's published a paper that i'm aware of and rick you're the papers guy where somebody has bleeds into the head from tpa that have been resurrected by neurosurgery never heard of it never heard of it you're right yeah so so some of the testimony that's given is unbelievable. I hear people all the time giving discussion about even giving TPA for strokes in the posterior fossa. There is no paper. There is no positive paper that included posterior fossa strokes. There's only two papers. And the NINS trial, data now 21 years old, 22 years old, and ECAS-3, and they both excluded non-sided posterior fossa strokes. So, they but, excluded a lot of things, including patients over 80. Yes. Well, of course. And the other problem with this is, as soon as you've now decided that it's good for this one, you get something which the military is familiar with called mission creep. This is all we're going to do is this. And you know what? All of a sudden, people say, well, they've had a, why don't we give it for this too? You know, no getting, data. Getting back to the telemedicine thing, it's going to take off. People can call a for forty dollars and speak to one of fourteen hundred specialists who signed on to the project that was started by Dr. Phil and Google. Forget the name of it. It's been estimated that a million people will be involved in have a telemedicine transaction in the current year, so that. The idea of not getting into trouble is kind of surprising because the last I heard, you need to do a history and a physical in most of these kind of conditions, certainly not psych, but I mean, if somebody's complaining about a cough or a belly pain or something like that, that you cannot do a physical on telemedicine, the last I heard. You can look at them right, and you can look at the belly. But I guess you could say, have the patient touch the belly in the right upper quadrant, right underneath the ribs. Does that hurt you now when you do that? Yeah, I mean, that's like, I don't know. For all our listeners, we're differentiating from those teleservices which support smaller ERs, you know, medical people calling in to get an opinion from the University of Iowa or something like that, from people who just call up watching it on TV at night where you've got some distinguished-looking doctor who says, does your doctor really listen to you? Our phone lines are open. Here's the number to call. We have compassionate people who care. 
that's about right, isn't it, Rick? Well, yeah, I think that there are lots of examples of people using telemedicine. So far, most of the people use telemedicine are mothers with children. Right. Generally, because the kid is sick in some way and they'd like some reassurance or they'd like some advice. And frankly, without examining the kid, it's kind of hard to give reassurance. But the law of averages said there's nothing wrong with that kid 99.9% of the time if it's gotten its immunizations. So you're going to get away with it, not because you're smart, but because you're lucky. The other thing is that there are doctors out there who are practicing telemedicine across state lines into states in which they are not licensed. Oh, yeah. Well, we talked, I think, last time yes. about this move to have licenses, except your Mul- behavior is uh, aggregated so that if you, you can t- talk to people in other states, but if you talk to them in other states, you are bound by the rules of that state. And so uh, I forget the name of what that's called, but there's more and more states now trying to come together. And it's actually being instigated by... The, the state's medical licensing boards because they don't want the feds to have a national license. So they want to maintain their own ability to license doctors. Yeah, I think as of uh, January 1st, it'll be 13 states, and it's mostly in the West, where they will essentially honor the license Mm -hmm. of another state for certain kinds of activities. And you can picture this as more and more of this uh, electronic examination goes forward, uh, what's the difference whether you're a doctor in Indiana or in Kentucky? And, and they're going to, there's going to be uh, t- tremendous problems down the road. Have they, been, have they lost their license someplace else? Have they joined this network just so they can still maintain their living I think that uh, I think there are a lot of problems here that have not been dealt with yet, but stay tuned because it is going in a direction. All new ideas have two things: they have velocity and direction. The direction here is in shared licensure, and the velocity of this has moved on to five years ago. You wouldn't have found it, and now thirteen states are going together. So one of the other things that's true is that some of the telemedicine companies are actually quite responsible. And what they're doing is they're selling their program to physicians in, say, family practice who have established relationships with patients. And it's a way to communicate with the patients after hours, keep them out of the emergency department, keep them out of urgent cares. And that that seems reasonable to me. But what we're talking about is no prior patient relationship, no physical exam, and practicing medicine that way. And frankly, I think it's dangerous, and I think that we'll see a lot of cases uh, in this area in the future. By the way, what is the standard of care for telemedicine? You got to, it's going to be viewed as a different specialty, and, and, and what we do is not going to be the same as what we do in an emergency department. Yeah, some of the discussions have said, well, the standard of care obviously has to be adjusted because of the limitations associated with telemedicine. Mm-hmm. Maybe you don't need to do a physical examination. Maybe, I don't know how that's going to go. But but you know, Rick, how many times have you been in the emergency department when you're doing a review of systems and the patient is saying, no, 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 no belly pain, no belly, whatever, whatever, whatever the case may be, you get to the physical exam and they have pretty exquisite 
right lower quadrant tenderness or right or whatever, whatever your finding is that was negative on review of systems that you would have missed. And honestly, if you're practicing medicine that way without having hands on the patient, I think that you could potentially miss a lot of things. Patients deny a lot of things. They're not thinking the way that you're thinking. It's not necessarily their fault. But to practice medicine in this way is, uh, and to say that that we would have a different standard of care, I think is not not a good trend. No, I think there's a need that I can envision the telemedicine association in its own interest trying to set up a separate set of or modify the requirements to do a physical exam because that's they're not doing a physical exam. I say that they they're not really looking at a kid's ear. Who mom says that for all you know they might say, well, if a kid's complaining about his ear or seems to be uh, having an ear problem or touching their ear or tugging their ear, well, we'll prescribe the moxicillin. We had a great paper in the abstract that said there is no correlation between an otitis media and the kid touching his ear, pulling his ear, and all of these things which had traditionally been viewed as oh, it must must be. And exactly. And what are they calling for? They're calling for antibiotics. They're calling for pain medicines. I don't think that you can, you can't prescribe the pain medicines over, you know, over by telemedicine, but they're calling for Viagra. They're calling, they're calling for antibiotics. Those, those are kind of the things that they're looking for. (laughs) Well, I always love it when I have this rash. Well, good. Hold it up to the phone and and I'll take a look at it. You know, a lot, a lot of these are, you know, they're, you can physically see them. I mean, even something as universal as Skype, why can't that be used for telemedicine for a rash? I don't know that you need a lot of, maybe it's a not secured line or any of those little nuances kind of thing. Yep. But I think dermatology, teledermatology, you know, may be able to work. You're not a dermatologist, but some guy sees it and says, oh yeah, I know what that is. I'm a dermatologist. You know, that may be very helpful. I think there are some great applications for telemedicine. I think that it's, it, uh, as it evolves, I think that we'll see that it can be quite useful. But in the beginning, when people are looking to make a lot of money on a, on a company and they're, they're looking to, to set these things up, I think it can get out of, contr- out of hand at times. We see this with freestanding emergency departments. We see it. Uh, some, no. No. No, right. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> All right. Well, Jennifer, thank you very much for dropping by. We're so happy to see you. This is your second appearance on Risk Management Monthly, I believe. Is there any hazing process or anything we put these people no, through? No, 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 no. Okay. I'm very appreciative. I mean, it's there are not a lot of MDJDs, that's for sure, that are so involved in the colleges. I don't think there are any others, frankly, that are so involved in the colleges uh, process of dealing with these issues issues, and you're on the committee that looks at these records and I think that uh, you do us a nice service. I appreciate it. Thank you. Thank you. It's my pleasure. So this is Rick and Greg and the uh, interviews that you just heard were recorded at the 2015 ASEP meeting in Boston and I wanted to again thank Terry and uh, Jennifer for participating. We're back in our homes. Uh, I'm in Los Angeles. Greg's in uh, Ann Arbor. And uh, we're going to finish up this tape with a number of cases that Greg has. But before we do that, I want to acknowledge uh, it wasn't clear on the recording who was the MDJD that was so diligent in 
working on the case in which the physician was ultimately exposed, uh, expelled from ASIM. That's Joe Littner. So, Joe, congratulations. I know you've worked years on this and, um, and well-deserved. Uh, Joe's wife is Maria Hughley, and the two of them are, oddly enough, like to go to our Whistler courses. They go every year, except we haven't had a course in Whistler for a while. So, Greg, you and I, you and I, are going to be part of the Whistler faculty up there this year, and I hope that uh, our listeners would consider joining us. Well, I hope there's listeners who would love to go to Whistler and actually don't ski like you and I, because we'll just uh, troll the various uh, bars and have a good time in Whistler. But uh, if you expect to see me on the slopes, wrong. <laughs> it ain't going to happen. No, we see you by the by the fire, you know, with the, uh, hot to- with the hot toddies. So listen, you have a case or two that you wanted to go over? Yes, I have several things I want to go over. I want to illustrate what's happening at state boards around the United States, medical boards, because I have just received the recent New Hampshire Board of Medicine's strict reporting requirements. Now, this is what's been sent out to everybody who has a New Hampshire license, including me, who I used to have a New Hampshire license 40 years ago, but somehow I'm still on the mailing list. Was it a state 40 years ago? It was a state 40 years ago, and uh, I was a uh, resident at Dartmouth at that time. And I practiced in some emergency medicine and some very small hospitals in that area. In any event, this is what's happening. The board in New Hampshire, and typical of, of the states, licensees must provide notice to the board within 30 days of any of the following events or occurrences. Number one. Any change in home or business address. Yeah, we can put up with that. Not a problem. Any change in email address or addresses. Notice of complaint. Here's where it starts to get ugly. Notice of a complaint. Legal action or asserted claim for medical injury. That is the same as a summons and complaint in a lawsuit. So this jumps the gun. This jumps the gun now because you would not have to have something like that reported in any normal state until it was determined whether the claim is justified. Well, I think the phrase is, until there has been a proper adjudication of the claim, i.e., why are we now being presumed guilty when someone is sent in a summons and complaint? I have no idea why, but this is a big issue. Next, disciplinary action from this or any other jurisdiction, which means if you hold licenses in five states and there's been a question raised, not that you were found guilty of anything, but any question raised in any state where you have licensure, that has to be reported to the New Hampshire board. And we've never seen that before. Disciplinary action from any healthcare facility licensed by the state of New Hampshire. So if there's been an issue raised in your hospital, whichever one that is, whether you're guilty, innocent, just a part of the process, the fact that you're going through the process needs to be reported. Next, a misdemeanor criminal conviction by any trial court. That means it could be jaywalking in the state of New York. 
Now, I'm not sure how you'd prove jaywalking in New York City, for example, but what, criminal are you kidding? Everybody has a body camera on. Every, everything is photographed on the telephone. I, you know, the, every, there's no question about documenting uh, crimes like this. Well, it, what's interesting is misdemeanors. And I don't ever remember that being a part of this. And then the last one we understand, a felony criminal conviction. All right, we'll give them that one. We'll we'll give them that one. But you you realize if you've uh, driven 80 miles an hour or you've you've had, let's say we call a Hollywood red light stop, which means you didn't stop at all. You have to report that to your to your the the medical board. I mean, some of this is becoming a little draconian, and I'm not sure exactly how they defend this. What do they think they're protecting the citizens of New Hampshire from? A guy who uh, who uh, missed a stop sign. I mean, some of this stuff really is ridiculous. Yeah, that's certainly uh, a scary trend. And I hope it doesn't spread like some kind of virus because I've not uh, heard anything, any anything near that here in the uh, Golden State. All right. Next is we we might as well do some cases. And this week we are actually going to do a couple of cases which have to do with the Veterans Hospital Administration. For all of you who have not been involved with the Veterans Administration. It is, of course, a branch of the federal government. When you practice in a federal hospital, it doesn't matter which state you are licensed in. My license of the state of Michigan allows me to practice in any VA throughout the United States. In any event, the plaintiff had gone to a Veterans Administration hospital in the state of Massachusetts, as a matter of fact, And there was some suspicion of a TIA or evidence of of an involving stroke. Baby aspirin was prescribed. The patient suffered a severe, massive stroke, which left him in a locked-in syndrome. For those not familiar with the locked-in syndrome, it is a lesion in the posterior fossa at the level of the sixth cranial nerve, and it moves across that in entire area. Now, what that means is you can you can hear, you can see, you can sometimes you can feel, you can think, but you can't move anything except your eyes in an up and down position. You are locked in. You are a prisoner of your body. This is sometimes referred to as the Count of Monte Cristo syndrome. For those of you who actually know about the Count of Monte Cristo. The Count didn't have this syndrome. His girlfriend's father did, the Monsieur de Villefort and Nautier, for the cognoscente uh, in our listening audience. But just understand, if I had to give my enemy, my worst enemy, the worst disease I could, I wouldn't give him this one. Here's the bad part. This is rare. We don't know what to do about it. There has never been a paper published that showed that you prevent or improve posterior fossa strokes with either TPA or heparin, both of which were suggested by plaintiff's experts in this case. Uh, And by the way, this was not a jury trial. They opted to go bench, i.e. the decision will be made by the judge. 
The judge in this case was appalled, but the outcome, I'm appalled at the outcome. I wouldn't want to have this disease, but there was no malpractice here. And he awarded $21.5 million to the family based on this absolutely ludicrous testimony. We even had stroke experts who usually testify against emergency physicians who came in to defend the actions in this case. It, it is absolutely horrific and testimony, as they say, egregious in nature. Well, the uh, other issue here is the VA, because this person is a veteran, would be responsible for taking care of him and, and bearing the medical costs. So this $21 million is not to cover health-related kinds of things. It sounds like it's punitive for the family because this poor person's not going to be able to get any value out of this money. I guess it allows them to leave the VA system and receive care uh, independent of that system. It doesn't sound like they should be mandated to receive their ongoing care, and they're probably not very interested in receiving care from the VA after this occurred, even though there was nothing that could have been done to probably avoid it. Well, you know, Rick, I, I think at some point in time, bad things happen in this, the best of all worlds. You and I are, we're all going to die, some of us sooner than others. And to actually say, to, to mouth the words, first of all, I know what to do in these cases. And, and to have phrases from this that say, we always do this. What do you mean you always do that? How many of these cases can there be? Is there a literature on these cases? Is somebody published a study somewhere that said baby aspirin was not a reasonable thing to do? I mean, this, this has gone beyond the pale as far as I'm concerned. Well, give us another disappointing case. Uh, <laughs> all right. You get one more. And I love this case uh, for several reasons because it talks about the hospitals, which, again, this is a veterans hospital, and we have talked on this program about the fact that medical records should not be accessed unless you have some reason, some, <laughs> some viable medical reason to do this. So we will take you to a veterans affairs hospital somewhere, in, well, actually in the state of Texas, but it was not a Texas case. It's a federal case. The plaintiffs, the plaintiff was a patient at a Veterans Affairs Medical Center where the defendant, i.e. an employee of the VA hospital, was employed by the hospital's internal police department as a communications operator. The plaintiff maintains that the defendant had had a romantic relationship with him and texted him regarding his drug addiction rehab program that he was involved in. Now, wait a minute. <laughs> he says he never spoke to this woman about any of this. No, she wanted to make comments about, and maybe yeah. she wanted to add Viagra to the treatment program. I have no idea. But the point is uh, that the course of true love never did run true. And that's exactly what happened in this case. So they split. Now he sues the VA hospital because she brought up his medical records on the computer, on the screen, and was giving him 
psychiatric advice and critique about his program. What do you think about that, Rick? Well, I think it's pr- that's pretty outrageous. You would think that a normal human being would not be as insensitive to communicate something like that to uh, somebody that they're uh, interested in romantically. Like, how's your treatment going? Uh, you know, <laughs> are, you, are you still get the shakes? Uh, <laughs> yes. <laughs> yes. Well, yeah. well I, I can understand if she'd called up treatment on his impotence or something, but that isn't what this was about. And and I think, you know, in most hospitals, here's the difference between the VA system and a hospital like St. Joe's here in Ann Arbor. If you did that at St. Joe's, it's an automatic firing. In the VA, they keep people on forever. I know in Los Angeles, if you were at some place like Cedars Med- Sinai, uh, and you call up some star's medical record, it's an automatic firing. Zero tolerance. Uh, Zero tolerance. And exactly. That's kind of the way it's become, I think, throughout the city because there are so many personalities that go into these hospitals, and it's so tempting to do this that it's pretty much clear that all the hospitals are going to have zero tolerance with regards to the violation of a patient's privacy. I think that it shouldn't matter if you're a star. Oh, you, may be a st- you, you, you may be a star in your own mind. <laughs> you may be a star in your own community. You may be president of the school board. You may be this or that. You know, there ought to be some place left in this world where there is some privacy. Don't go there. We've, we've talked about cases on this show. Remember the, the gentleman with the rectal light bulb problem and that x-ray had been sent out to 500 people. Just, just remember this. You wouldn't want anything from any of your family getting out. And if there's no reason to bring it up, no reason to, to get that file, don't do it. The last thing is everybody is now looking again at the sending of x-rays, EKGs, all kinds of things out to the consultant's phones. There needs to be a policy at your hospital that those phones are registered. We know what's done with those images. If you need to have a separate phone for your medical business, that probably ought to be done. But our, our policies and procedures are way behind where the technology is at this point in time. One of the things about the technology that is not way behind is it is extraordinarily easy to identify anybody who has accessed somebody's record because there's all of these passwords to get in. There's all these timestamps. It is, I think, very, very easy to find out who has been looking at records inappropriately. Yeah. By the way, the suit brought in the Texas case, the the love triangle sort of case, uh, had nothing to do with an injury other than emotional distress. Mm-hmm. I'm emotionally distressed because you released my information to my uh, alleged girlfriend at this moment in time. Harm is in the eye of the jury, of the people trying the case. You might say, ah, now nah, this is a $5 case. It isn't a $5 case. If you're the person who's aggrieved, and who knows, 
maybe you are now incapacitated and now you're going to suffer from traumatic stress disorder. That was, those are the actual words in this case, that they suffered uh, traumatic stress disorder because of the anguish of the humiliation. Hey, Greg, we have about one minute left, a, a generous minute at, at that. So do you want to just get to the core on the wine of the month? Yeah, we're going to get to the core. New area this month, it's the Santa Cruz Mountains, which are within sight line from San Francisco. It is the new area where the sort of the chic small wines are being made. As I pointed out to you once, Rick, I think there's no place left to grow grapes in California. Instead of, you know, fungus between your toes, you must be growing grapes in that state. We've got two wines to talk about. One is the Big Basin Vineyard 2013. It's a Chardonnay, Chardonnay Bald Mountain. And again, Santa Cruz Mountains. This is the white, which is, is well thought of by all the major rating services at this point in time. The next one from the same region, Lexington Wine Company, the 2011 Merlot Gist Ranch Vineyards. And this wine is uh, spectacular. And at 45 bucks a bottle, it is a third or a quarter what they charge, you know, uh, 60 miles north in uh, Sonoma or Napa Valleys. So there you go, Rick. Yeah, a veritable bargain, I'm sure. A veritable bargain. <laughs> hey, listen, thanks very much, Greg. Let's sign off here. We'll talk with you next month. Bye for now. Bye-bye. <laughs> Oh, my God.